Jesus, the sovereign I am, Lord of the universe, is worthy of our worship and faith. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. Well, in the scriptures, we read of two men who walked on water. Uh, Jesus, of course, but also Peter. Uh, But I want you to know, I also have walked on water. Now, it was in Chicago. It was just off of Oak Street Beach. And yes, it happened to be in the dead of winter. But details, (laughs) details on that. And, uh, you know, the scene... It looked a little bit like that. Some of you have been down there, you know. Usually, oftentimes in winter, you know, there will be little portions of Lake Michigan that, of course, will freeze over. But generally, you know, it stays fairly clear a little bit further out. But this was one of those winters uh, where it was so cold that it froze out quite a ways, quite a ways out there. Now, some of you have heard this story before. But this was some years ago. I was a student at Moody at the time. And this was during an especially brutal cold snap. Uh, So cold for so long that a good portion of the Lake Michigan shoreline was frozen quite a ways out. And so some of my friends and I from school, well, we decided to venture out a bit. And we had gone out a little ways. And they were getting a little hesitant, a little tentative. And I was making fun of them. Of course, I was making fun of them being so tentative and only going so far out. And I was saying, oh, come on, we can go further than that. Come on, you wimps, right? We can go further. So I decided I was going to show them how it's done, right? So I just kept going right on out into the lake a good bit further. And who knows where this story is going? Who knows where this story is going, right? So as I walked along and I'm making fun of them, all of a sudden I hear this cracking noise. Uh Uh-oh, right? (laughs) You hear that creak, creak, crack, crack, and this is not good. Well, the next thing I knew, half of my right leg was submerged in freezing cold water, and it was threatening to take more of me if I didn't act fast. And so I quickly fell to my left side, and I was able then to pull my leg out of the water and then just kind of tenderly crawl back a little bit from there until I eventually was able to make it safely back to shore. Now, I I have to tell you, I'm not sure which was worse, whether it was the very cold walk back to school or the ridicule from my friends. (laughs) Probably the ridicule from my friends. Guys, am I right? That's worse. That's worse than the cold, right? Well, today then, we're going to read about someone else who ventured out into the water only to suddenly start sinking, as well as someone else who will never sink on the water. So we continue in our series here today, Unique, the Life, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we are using as our source here this book called One Perfect Life. It is a harmony of the Gospels of Jesus Christ. It takes all four Gospels and puts them together into one flowing account in chronological order of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so today, then, our message is walking on water, walking on water. 
And we are looking at a harmony then of Matthew chapter 14, verses 20 through 36, Mark 6, 47 to 56, and John 6, 15 to 21. So Matthew 14, Mark 6, and John 6 are where we are pulling these texts here together. And here is the key thought that I want us to pull away from our text here today, is that Jesus, the sovereign I am, Lord of the universe, is worthy of our worship and faith. Jesus, he is the sovereign, I am Lord of the universe. And he's worthy then of our worship and our faith. But before we do that, a little context here for our text. Uh, Just last week, we had looked at how Jesus had fed the multitude, 5,000 men, probably a total of 15,000, 20,000 people here with the women and children. And through that miraculous feeding of this huge crowd of people with just how much, how much, how many resources did the disciples make available to Jesus? It was how many loaves? Five little loaves and two fish. And Jesus took that little that they had and he multiplied it and was then able to feed all of those thousands of people then with that. And until they were full. Yeah, not just a little 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 bite or two here until they were full. And in fact, there were leftovers, right? How many leftovers? 12 baskets. Why 12 baskets full, do you suppose? 12 disciples. So each of them, remember we said they were what we called them, they were what for Jesus? Waiters, right? They were waiters for Jesus. They weren't doing the miracle, were they? But they were the ones who were taking the sustenance that Christ was producing and taking it to the people then who needed it. They were like waiters for Jesus. And of course, the point of this whole thing was not simply to feed hungry people physically, was it? That was a part of it. But what was the real message? Is how Jesus, the Lord, is the sustainer of our souls, right? That he feeds us spiritually. And what was the message for the disciples in that? they were going to be waiters, spiritual waiters for Jesus, right? Taking that sustenance to the people then. And so this was a message then that he wanted them to understand. But there was another message in that, though, that they didn't quite catch. And we see that referenced in our text here today, that they saw that. They saw the miracle, but they still weren't entirely clear on the fact that Jesus was God in the flesh. We're going to look a little more at that in a moment. But here this miracle has occurred now, and now Jesus is sending the crowds away then. And let's see what happens next. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there, And meanwhile, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose, because a great wind was blowing. So here we see then, first off, a temporary parting, a temporary parting. Jesus temporarily parted from the crowds, but also from his disciples for a time. As you know, when we read the scriptures, we see that this was something that Jesus would do regularly. 
where he would come, a while, come away for a while, come apart from the, uh, from the crowds and from the disciples and spend time alone with the Heavenly Father in a quiet place where he could pray. And as we have mentioned before, this example is instructive for us, isn't it? Because if Jesus needed that private communion time with the Father, how much more so do you and I, right? So after dismissing the crowds, he instructed his disciples then to go ahead of him back over on the Sea of Galilee in their boat toward Capernaum. And Jesus went up in the hills onto a mountain, where there he was alone praying. But while he was alone praying, he was very much aware, though, of what was going on with his disciples as well. They were in the boat, and they were making their way across the sea there when a storm arose. As we have said before, sudden storms are not unusual on the Sea of Galilee, because it is this very large lake, essentially, and it is surrounded by very high hills all the way around it. And so what happens is, is cool air from the higher elevations rushes down and it meets the warmer air on the sea, which causes then this sudden waves and churning of the water, lots of wind and waves. So this was not an unusual thing for this to happen. And it happened then to them that evening as the disciples were in the boat there. We're told then next that the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now in the fourth watch of the night, when they had rowed about three or four miles, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea, and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out for fear. And they were afraid, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. So we had a temporary parting, but then now then we see a surprising reunion a surprising reunion with Jesus, with his disciples. The disciples had set out early in the evening, and after struggling against the wind and the waves, they were pushed a good bit off course out toward the middle of the sea. And it was now the fourth watch of the night. The Romans divided the night watch from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. into four watches of three hours each. So the fourth watch, what time was that? I'll do the math for you. 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So it's the last watch of the night then. Now, where is Jesus? He's off on the other side. He's up in the mountains and he's praying. And yet, he's very much aware of what's happening with his disciples. He sees them. How do you think he saw them? How do you think he saw them straining? He's God, right? He saw them. He knew what was going on with his disciples. Now, he saw them struggle. And they had been struggling for a while. Because now, here it is, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. And if they had set out earlier that evening, they'd been struggling for hours. Do you think maybe the, some of the disciples were kind of wondering, like, uh, like, mm, like what's going on here? Where'd you, he's abandoned us, right? 
Do you think the disciples ever felt like that? Like, where's Jesus? He's abandoned us. We've been struggling for hours. He's nowhere to be seen. But Jesus knew what was happening, didn't he? He knew. And he knew what he was going to do. But he didn't immediately go out to them. And, you know, in the same way, Jesus sees us in our struggles at times, doesn't he? And he doesn't always immediately come to us. But that doesn't mean he doesn't see, he doesn't know, and that he has no plans to come to us. Because he does. So then he determined to go out to them then. Now, he was walking on the water. Now, why did Jesus walk on the water? Now, was this simply because, what's the shortest distance between two points? A straight line. So if they're out in the sea, and Jesus wants to go to them, you know, well, let's, uh, rather than meeting them back over in there, so what he's going to do, I'm just going to take the shortest point. I'll just, I'll just go out on the water. That's the shortest line there. That's the straight point. Is that why Jesus walked on the water? Is because it'd be the quickest way to get to his disciples? Just take that straight line there. No. He walked on the water because he was going to send a clear message to them about his identity as the Son of God. You see, the disciples were still a little bit unclear that he was God in the flesh. Now, we might be a little surprised by that. We're used to that. You see, we have grown up in the church. Actually, we shouldn't be that surprised. There are people who grow up in the church, and they've been sat in many sermons, uh, Sunday school lessons and that, even some good teaching, and still a little bit unclear about this idea that Jesus is, in fact, God, right? (laughs) And so here were these disciples then, and they were, they, obviously they knew he was a great prophet. They knew God was with him. They saw the miracles that he was performing. But they knew, well, other great prophets had done great miracles too, right? But they weren't quite catching on to that. No, he is not simply a prophet. He is the son of God. He is God in the flesh, And so now he was going to send a message. This miracle of walking on the water wasn't just a convenient way to quickly get to them. It was sending a message about his identity as the Son of God. You might wonder, well, how would that make that clear to them? It's such, you know, considering all the other miracles that Jesus had done, why would this particular message this miracle, why would this particular miracle impact their understanding that he is God? People can't walk on water, right? But, but it says what? Well, the disciples knew the scriptures. And in Job 9, verse 8, it speaks of how God has trampled upon the waves of the sea. And in verse 11, it says, and he passes me by. In Psalm 77, verses 19 and 20, there it speaks of the Lord as, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And in Isaiah 43, verse 16, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. So scriptures such as these, no doubt, would have come to their minds. 
but not at first. <laughs> at first, what came to their minds? Fear. A ghost. A spirit. What is this, right? They see this figure. It's the middle of the night, three o'clock in the morning. They've been struggling for hours. And here they're out in the middle of the sea. And now here's this ghostly figure walking on the water coming toward them. And they were frightened. They feared that it was a ghost, a spirit, perhaps an evil spirit that was coming toward them. And I wonder, what would you have felt if you were in the boat? If you were in the boat with them and you saw that, what do you think your reaction might have been? I'd probably been a little freaked out myself, right? The disciples were terrified. But then Jesus spoke to them. And he said, be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And that phrase that is translated, it is I, ego eimi, has echoes of something else God once said to his people. Something he said to Moses. He said what? I am. It is I. I am. So the disciples heard this. What happens next is quite surprising, actually, and amazing, I think. It says, And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And so he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, I like that translation there. The wind was boisterous. He was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt so here we see a temporary parting, a surprising union, and the reunion, and then little faith. Peter asks if it is truly Jesus for him to command him to come out on the water. And Jesus did so. And Peter got out and began to walk on that water toward him. But at some point, and put yourself in Peter's shoes here for a moment, as you're walking, and you think you might have a moment of like, wait a minute, what am I doing here, right? As he looks out and he sees the waves and, and all that's happening around, the boisterous waves, no less. And he became afraid. And his faith faltered. And he began to sink. But smartly, what did he do? He cried out to Jesus, who stretched out his hand and pulled him up. You know, when this story is read, we often remark how Peter took his eyes off Jesus and he started looking at the waves around him instead. And that is certainly instructive for us. But as I have said before, how many of us would have gotten out of the boat in the first place, right? But there he was. Nevertheless, now at this point, I'm thinking, if I'm watching this, I'm pretty impressed with Peter's faith, actually, right? 
I wouldn't have been out there. I'd stay in the boat, right? (laughs) Or on the ice where it's safe. safe. That's right. Ah, come on, you wimp. Come on, we can go further than this. Uh Uh-huh. So it's amazing the things you do when you're young, you know, and the brain isn't quite fully developed. (laughs) My brain still hasn't quite fully developed yet, but, you know, so... Yeah, it's amazing what youth and ego can do, right? So I could tell you some other stories. We'll just leave it at that for right now. So what's that? Good thing there's God. God. That's right. Absolutely. So uh, here then is, I'm in the boat. I'm looking at Peter. I'm amazed by his faith. Now, yeah, okay, he got scared and he started to sink, but Jesus grabbed it. But I'm still thinking, wow, that's pretty impressive faith. But what does Jesus say to him? Little faith. Wow. Hmm. Little faith. Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Now he had enough faith to get out of the boat. Jesus says that's little. That's little to get out of the boat and walk. It was little though then because what? Instead of continuing to trust him through it, what? He started looking around then. And I know that never happens to any of us here, does it? We exercise some faith, and then, you know what? It gets harder. Wait a minute, what am I doing here? Right? Have you ever stepped out in faith in a boisterous situation and then began to fear? We need to keep our eyes focused on Jesus, don't we? Told them, then he went up into the boat to them, and they willingly received him. I'm sure they was very willingly received him, right? <laughs> and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. It's a second miracle. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. For they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Enlightened worship. Jesus got into the boat and the wind ceased and immediately the boat was at their destination. So actually, in this story here, then, in these events, we usually think of the, well, there was the miracle of walking on the one miracle, but actually there were three miracles, weren't there, wasn't there? There was the miracle of Jesus walking on the water, the miracle of Jesus enabling Peter to walk on the water, and then immediately arrive, once he got into the boat, immediately arriving at the land, at their destination. And this was the lesson that Jesus intended for his disciples to learn all along was about his identity as the Son of God, God in the flesh. And that began to sink in, pun slightly intended. They had not understood before about his identity as the Son of God through the loaves, through the feeding of the 5,000. Why? Why didn't they get that he was the Son of God? They should have been understanding that through watching what he did with the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. 
but they didn't understand. The text tells why. Because why? Their hearts were hardened. We have to think of it. Wait a minute. Doesn't that seem to? What is it? Their hearts. They're his disciples. They believed in him. They were walking with him, and yet their hearts were hardened. What does that mean? Well, that scripture, when it speaks of a heart being hardened there, for someone to believe something, it's not just a matter of the intellect, is it? We can have facts presented to us. They can go into our minds. We may even believe intellectually in certain things, but not truly biblically understand and believe. Right, Because biblical belief, biblical understanding, biblical faith is much more than just the intellect. That's part of it. But it's also what? It's the heart. It's the will. And so when it says their hearts were hardened, it means that there's, a, there's, there's an overtone there of, of a rebelliousness, that there was a rebelliousness in their hearts. You might think, well, come on, they were his disciples how could they have a rebellious element in their hearts that refuse to believe? Here's disciples. They're in the Bible. <laughs> How many of you here are disciples of Jesus or followers of Jesus? Right? Many of us, I know. Is there any little rebellion in your heart? You think maybe there are things that God has shown to us, has said to us, that we still just don't get it because there's still rebellion in our hearts, isn't there? So we should not be surprised that the disciples did not understand all of these things all at once. It took time. I'm still in process of understanding and learning things. God is still dealing with rebellion in my heart. But now the truth was dawning, just as the sun was dawning that morning, now the truth was dawning on their hearts. And so what was their response? They fell down before him and worshipped him. Who is the only one who is to be worshipped? God, right? We see of, of, in, of sometimes, in, sometimes even the people of God falling down in the scriptures, falling down before an angel, and the angel says what? Get up. <laughs> worship God alone. But Jesus doesn't say, worship. hey, get up. What are you doing? No, he receives their worship. Why? Because he was worthy. Worthship, right? So they understood, truly, you are the son of God. You're not just a, a miracle-working prophet. He was a prophet, and he did work miracles. But you are the son of God. Truly, you are God. Well, when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the men of the place recognized him, and they sent out into all that surrounding region and began to carry about on beds all those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he entered, into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched it were made perfectly well. So here then again we see his healing power. They came to the land of Gennesaret, an area on the western shore of uh, the Sea of Galilee, and anchored there. 
Now the people then there, they recognized him as a great miracle worker, as a healer, and he was that. But he was more than that. He was what? He was the son of God. But they saw this miracle worker, and they began to send for all of their sick to bring them to come to him to be healed. They would lay them out in the marketplaces and beg just to touch the hem of his garment. Now when you hear that, where have we seen that before in the scriptures about being healed by touching the hem of his garment? The woman with the flow of blood, blood, right? She had just reached out and said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment. Now the people were doing this and the people were saying, hey, if I can just touch the hem of his garment. Now a little bit of speculation here, but you think maybe that story about This woman who just touched the hem of his garment got out to people. You think maybe she might have said something to people about this? What do you bet she told a lot of people about that? That's all I did was touch the hem of his garment and I was healed. And now, here's everybody say, hey, hey, just touch the hem of his garment, right? So many did and they were made perfectly well. And by the way, this is a foretaste of the day when we will all be made perfectly well in him. Well, so what? What do you want me to do with this? I remind us then that Jesus, Jesus is the sovereign I am, Yahweh, Lord of the universe. And he is worthy of our worship and our faith. So I want to conclude by asking uh, three questions here. This first question is, do you know who Jesus is? He's not just a prophet. He's not just a teacher. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. He is God. I am. Do you worship Jesus in spirit and truth? The disciples understood. And what did they do? They worshiped him. They fell down and worshiped before him, declaring, you are the Son of God. You are the great I am. You are worthy of my faith, my adoration, my trust. Jesus said the Father seeks those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. When we worship in spirit, we're doing what? We're worshiping from the depth of our being. It's not just an outward thing, an outward ritual. It's not just in our minds, but it's what? From the whole depth of our being. It's giving our all to him. Worshiping in spirit, but also in truth, meaning what? We worship him according to the truth of how he has revealed himself in the word. Worshiping in spirit and truth, the true God. Worshiping the true God in the way that he requires us to worship him. Worshiping in spirit and in truth. But this last question I want us to spend a little time on here this morning as we close. And that's this, are your eyes fixed on Jesus? Again, Peter, we say, well, Peter took his eyes off Jesus. Shouldn't have done that, Peter. Well, you know what? I've taken my eyes off Jesus too, haven't you, sometimes? And why do we take our eyes off of Jesus? Because of what's going on around us, circumstances, right? And we wonder, wait a minute, what am I doing here? Can I really trust God, trust what God is doing in this? So I thought, as we reflected on that question, I want to share some thoughts with you um, 
from a book. I've referenced this book before. Uh, it's a book by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. It's a very good book. And um, I've gone through that with a, a, a number of people. And, and just uh, this chapter spent some time you know, in that with someone recently here and, and shared some of these thoughts at our Wednesday night Bible study. So if you're a part of that Bible study, you've heard this before, but guess what? You're going to hear it again, okay? Um, and I thought this would be a good thing to think about when we're challenged, perhaps, to take our eyes off of Jesus and to look at circumstances instead of being focused on him and his promise. Part of that maybe is, is we're just we're, we're wondering, is like, what does God do? Can I really trust God in this? Can I really trust what he's doing? And the answer is, is that, yes, we can trust him because he is perfectly wise. He's perfectly wise. And here's the thoughts I want to share with you on this about the wisdom of God. I think this is really terrific stuff. But Packer asks, what does the Bible mean when it calls God wise? And then he gives what I think is, is, is perhaps is the, the best definition of wisdom I've ever seen. Often as we pray for wisdom, right? Here is a great definition of wisdom. It says, wisdom is the power to see, and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. Well, that's it. Let me say it again. Wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. So what is wisdom? Wisdom is the best and the highest goal. It's seeing through whatever's going on to where here is the best outcome. This is the best goal in this. This is where I want to go toward. This is the best and highest goal. Wisdom then is the ability then to see that. But it's one thing to see it. It's another thing than what? To choose it. The inclination to choose it. We may know what it is. How many of us here know what is right for us to do? We know the right thing, absolutely, but we don't always choose it. It takes power to choose it, though, doesn't it? So wisdom is the power to see that best and highest goal. The inclination to choose it, and then what? And then the surest means of attaining it, of bringing it about. Isn't that a great definition of wisdom? So when we say that God is wise, that means that God always knows, in any situation, he always knows the best and the highest goal. And he wants to attain that in our lives. So wisdom, then, he says, is in fact the practical side of moral goodness. And as such, it is found in its fullness only in God. He alone is naturally and entirely and invariably wise. God always acts toward us with wisdom, the best and the highest goal. Wisdom, as the old theologians used to say, is his essence, just as power and truth and goodness are his essence, integral elements, that is, of his character. Now, we have wisdom of a sort, don't we? (laughs) But is it anything like God's wisdom? No. See, human wisdom can be faulty, 
But also, though, even if we do see the best and highest goal, human wisdom can be frustrated, can it? It says, but God's wisdom cannot be frustrated. And here's a word of encouragement for us today. It says, power is as much God's essence as wisdom is. I love this sentence here. Omniscience, which is what? Knowing all things. Governing omnipotence, which is what? All power. Infinite power, ruled by infinite wisdom, is a basic biblical description of the divine character. Let's say that again. Omniscience, governing omnipotence, that is infinite power, ruled by infinite wisdom. And this is what God does in our lives. Infinite power, ruled by infinite wisdom. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. So he says, God's almighty wisdom is always active and it never fails. All his works of creation and providence and grace display it. And until we can see it in them, we are just not seeing them straight. But we cannot recognize God's wisdom unless we know the end for which he is working. He says, but this idea of God's intention is a complete mistake. God's wisdom is not and never was pledged to keep a fallen world happy or to make ungodliness comfortable. Not even to Christians has he promised a trouble-free life. Rather the reverse. He has other ends in view for life in this world than simply to make it easy for everyone. How many of you can testify to that, right? What is he after then? What is his goal? What does he aim at? When he made us, his purpose was that we should love and honor him, praising him for the wonderfully ordered complexity and variety of his world, using it according to his will, and so enjoying both it and him. And though we have fallen, God has not abandoned his first purpose. Still he has plans that a great host of humankind should come to love and honor him, And his objective is to bring them into a state in which they please him entirely and praise him adequately, a state in which he is all in all to them, and he and they rejoice continually in the knowledge of each other's love. That's the goal God is working in. And that is God's glory, and it's our glory then too. So when we're tempted to take our eyes off of Jesus and to focus on our threatening circumstances, Remember God's almighty wisdom, infinite wisdom, infinite power. The best and the highest goal, keep walking to Jesus. Keep our eyes focused on him. Don't let the waves knock us off course. Because God's goal is best. Do you know who Jesus is? Do you worship him in spirit and truth? Are your eyes fixed on him no matter what? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the fact that we can put our trust and confidence in you no matter what. Lord, we are tempted, like Peter, to take our eyes off of you. We exercise a little faith and trust you, but then can become concerned by circumstances, by the buffeting winds and waves. So God, help us to keep our eyes focused on you, trusting your purposes and your will, that you are working in and through all things. You are, we acknowledge you, Lord Jesus. You are the sovereign God of the universe, the sovereign I am. 
We give you our worship. We give you our praise, our adoration. We give you our hearts. We give you our all. And we trust you, Lord, to take us by the hand and lead us toward that best and highest goal that you have for us. May we continue to trust you and walk faithfully with you all the days of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org. 